In his book called, This Book is Not for Sale, writer-comedian Jared Kent says this, I'm not waiting until my hair turns white to become patient and wise. Nope, I'm dyeing my hair tonight. Do you ever find yourself thinking and um, looking at young people and children and thinking, if I knew then what I know now, what one of us haven't said that at some point? But the problem is it wouldn't really make any difference because it isn't what we know that makes a difference. It's in knowing how and when to use what we know to live actually larger lives that makes the difference. And so you might say that wisdom is that knowing how and when. So wisdom is the art of knowing, not the science of knowing. And the art takes time, and it takes experience, and it takes mindfulness. And oftentimes, these three fall victim to hurried and unreflected lives. So even when we have all the knowledge, if we aren't able to cherish it in such a way, we can also fall victim of being very unwise. Wisdom comes with a, a slowing down, a pause, a uh, paying attention and noticing. But it also flourishes when they're savored and when they're held up to, into the light and reflected on. That's what happens with our lives. So our scripture reading this morning finds the baby Jesus, now 12 years old. And 12 years old are notorious for their own curiosity. So while it is a remarkable story, it's also, a, at some level, a very common story. 12-year-old asking questions. And if you look at the manger close enough in the story, you might begin to catch a glimpse of a creeping shadow of a cross on its way even then. The scripture this morning is from Luke 2. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his responses. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. And he said to them, Well, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth 
and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. The word of the Lord. I hope you know that there's about 30 sermons in this text, and I'm only going to preach one. So I just wanted to let you know that even though we're having one service today, I'm not going to take us till noon. I'm going to get us out on time. We can see at this particular juncture in Scripture that Luke uses this as a transition story to transition us from the story of Jesus' infant birth to his coming into his own as an adult. As Elizabeth said, it's the only story we have of that in between. And yet, the story gives us so much understanding of what happened in those in-between years. Most importantly, because of the bookends, the way Luke bookends the story, if you'll notice. For example, look at um, verse 40. Verse 40 starts the story. Verse 52 ends it. And it, ends, it starts and ends this way. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then we have the story. And then the story ends with this. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. Just those two verses tells you a lot of what was going on in that in-between space. The space in between the birth and his ministry. Because all along the way, we know that Jesus was preparing. That God was preparing Jesus. That Jesus' experience were preparing him. And that Jesus had a remarkable ability to not only use the science of knowing, but also the art of knowing when and how to use what he knew. He makes it very clear, Luke does, that even in Jesus' adolescent learning curve, that Jesus is listening for God and paying attention to what he hears which, honestly, is the essential seed for growing wisdom. Isn't that interesting? I did a, um, a spiritual director's diploma from San Francisco Theological Seminary. It took three years. And if I could sum that up, what they taught us on how to be in tune with the way God is moving in other people's lives, they said, basically, after all of these classes in three years, they said, Notice and pay attention. Isn't that amazing? If you can simply, what I like to say, keep on your spiritual tiptoes and your eyes wide open looking for God, God, God is there. And you'll see God and you'll experience God. Some people have said to me, why is it that, I, that God comes to me so strongly when I'm, when I'm stressed? And I say, I don't think God comes to you any stronger when you're stressed than when you're not stressed or when you're in trouble as though you're not in trouble. But you're looking a lot harder for God when you're in trouble. And you keep, you're keeping your eyes open. You know, when, I, uh, when my daughter Sarah, who um, is now a first grade teacher and mother of my two beautiful grandbabies, when she was about seven, she and I went out to buy a car. 
first time I'd ever bought a brand new car. And I wanted this forest green caravan minivan. I just, I needed it more than life itself. I just needed that car. And it was so unusual. You never saw many of them, but that forest green, I just loved it. And so I looked for months and months, and finally Sarah and I went out and we bought that. And so we pulled up to a stop sign, four-way stop. Guess what I saw on the right? Forest green minivan. Got into the parking lot at Vaughn's. Guess what was there? Forest green minivan. Drive down the street. Look what's across the street in my neighbor's driveway. Forest green minivan. Now, had all those minivans just suddenly appeared? No. They had all been there, but I wasn't paying any attention because I wasn't focused on them. But it's amazing what you'll see when you're focused on something. In this particular passage, for the first time, we hear Jesus speak for himself. Isn't that amazing? We haven't heard Jesus speak up to this point. We've heard other people talk about Jesus. We heard the angel announce Jesus. We heard Elizabeth say, wow, my baby just felt your baby. We heard uh, Simeon and Anna and all of these people. But Jesus has never said a word until now. And the first words that Jesus speaks are bold and confident and decisive about what? About who he belongs to. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house, he says to his parents? And it says they didn't understand what he was saying, but I can't help but think somewhere in the back of their mind, this little shadow of a memory of an angel coming in a dream and of shepherds in a night laid close to the surface, but they weren't ready for it. So here we see Jesus nurturing and an adeptness at making connections between the world's needs and God's actions. It seems that he was also coming to some level of realization that he was part of God's larger story. And isn't it interesting that that's our task as well, to come to the realization that we're part of God's larger story, along with Jesus. And he does this in an ancient style of learning, which is asking questions, really good questions about life, pulling back the layers, and getting to the heart of the issue. Kids do that a lot, don't they? Why are you sad? Why is daddy mad? Why is daddy always watching football? Why does he have no arm? Why? They just cut through it all and they'll go straight to the heart of it. And, that's, and that, in ancient times, that was considered such a remarkable sign of wisdom when you understood something enough to ask questions about it. And that's what Jesus was doing. And I wonder, often, what impact we might have in the world, you and I, if each of us who make claim to be followers of Jesus were to somehow surrender or claim or commit or act on wherever we happen to be in this great enterprise of being a Christian, of being a follower of Christ, if we might know that it's, you know, uh, we're perennial 12-year-olds, 
with God, there's always another level to go. There's always a deeper place to be. There's always more. This morning when I was praying and getting ready for this sermon, I said, God, why is it that all my life I want people to know that there's more of you? Because I don't think, I don't think it, we're built to just be satisfied with what we get. We are greedy after all. Why can't we be greedy for Christ? Why can't we be greedy for that more that God offers us constantly? Whatever place we happen to be stuck in or whatever place we happen to be on the journey to or all of that, if it crystallized into artful knowing, wisdom, so that we might do what Jesus did, so that we might boldly and decisively know and live who we belong to. We belong to Jesus. How do we live into that? If we believe that the most important person purpose we had on earth was in all things to be about our father's business don't you know that i have things to do for god and then if we are paying close attention to the work of the spirit for us as well there may be a dawning realization that we are and honestly always have been a part of god's larger story and God's actions to meet the needs of the world include us. I think that was one of the things that Jesus was encountering in that temple. What is all this? I could, I could see him asking, what does all this have to do with me? What is it that I'm supposed to do with this? That's the great question. What does this all have to do with you? And what are you supposed to do with all of this now? And the, and the reality is it's just the same as it was for Jesus. That we have to realize that God's intentions for the world include us. Include using us for God's intention for the world. And which means, of course, that whether we go for it or not, whether we want to be or not, we are each a part of one another's story. The whole story the past, the present, and the future. And Luke drives this point home in the most incredible um, literary device that, I mean, it's just so brilliant. He lifts up for us the past, the present, and the future that are all embodied in Christ within this story. And it's just a few verses. First of all, he links Jesus' story with the young young Jesus, and accounts of a young Samuel from the Old Testament. They're very similar. For instance, the Magnificat of Mary in Luke contains clear echoes and sometimes word-for-word -word verbatim of the hymn of Samuel's mother, Hannah, in 1 Samuel. Hannah's song in the Old Testament a thousand years earlier, My heart exalts in the Lord, my strength is exalted in my God. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Then we hear Mary's Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. 
the custom of Mary and Joseph to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover is talked about in the Old Testament as a custom of Samuel's parents. And the, in Samuel's story, it talks about the uh, two references of Samuel growing, maturing and growing wise. In the same way that there are two references to Jesus. So what is this for? It, it tells us that from the beginning, the story of Jesus in Luke is closely bound up with the story of Israel. So we have this eternal peace of God that begins to emerge. This eternity, this before and now and after. And the Jesus who appears in this narrative recalls the roots of Christianity beginning way back in the Old Testament, in the history of Israel. It was no foreign place. And at the same time, the story of Jesus is embedded and firmly linked to the past. At the very same time it happens, Luke also shows us that that shadow of that cross that we're talking about continues to grow and get bigger. The temple is extremely important in the life of Jesus. And we see Jesus in the temple on several, many occasions, but in three particular occasions that mark for us his growing maturity and his growing wisdom and his growing determination. The temple really is the place where Jesus was first recognized, is it not? As someone more than who they thought him to be. Aside from the shepherds on the hillside. They brought Jesus to the temple and it was Anna and Simeon who first recognized him as something very, very special. And it's at the temple that Jesus himself lays claim to his identity. Did you not know I must be in my father's house? And then, do you recall the next time that we hear about Jesus in the temple? is when he returns as an adult. And in his return as an adult, it belays any notion that Jesus is not determined, serious, and clear about what it takes to love and obey God. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And then Luke goes on to say, directly after that, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. Not very often we stop and think about that. We think about Jesus clearing them all out, and then it's just all said and done, and things go on as normal until, you know, the... Holy Week is full into full swing, but no, Jesus, even at this point, he says, get out, all of you. I've got work to do in my Father's house. His purpose is very clear. His mission is so very clear. Jesus is lost to his parents for three days, but on the third day, he is found. Does that begin to sound familiar? Jesus lay in the tomb, but on the third day, he arose. So we have a foreshadowing, as well as a look into the past. Is there a deeper significance 
to this one and only glimpse into the life of Jesus between birth and resurrection. You know, uh, some of you may have heard this, but in memorial services, a lot of times people will use a poem called Dash. Have any of you ever heard of that? It's really quite remarkable. Dash is that dash between the date of your birth and the date of your death. That little dash. And it says what real, what's really important is what happens in the dash. You're born and you die, but what do you do in between? And this is that dash. This is the meat of, of all that God did in order for Jesus to do what Jesus did. And what is our dash? What is our in-between? What is our life? What is the thickness of what we do? So is it more than a, an interesting curiosity about this small few verses story that's laid in here? And I think it's much about much more than that. I think it bears witness to the eternal nature of God's unchanging salvation intention towards us. I mean, the very thought that Jesus is a relentless pursuer of our hearts is so touching and so comforting to know that Jesus is relentlessly pursuing those who do not yet know him and counting on us to pursue as well and not in, a, not in an intrusive and ugly way, but in the way and the path of friendship and care and living the life that Jesus has brought us to live. I also think it reminds us that God is alive and present and working in our lives and the lives of our children. Mary and Joseph may have thought that it was up to them to bring their child up in the ways of the faith. And it's true, as parents and grandparents, that is part of our responsibility. But the thing that we must never confuse is that it's up to us whether they know God or not. It's up to us whether they have a relationship with God. The Holy Spirit is at work in our children from the very beginning. God is relentlessly pursuing them from the very beginning. We must make sure that we're not falling behind when that Spirit called, that Holy Spirit, which is a freight train, comes barreling through. And I also think it challenges us, each of us, to do the hard work of learning how to recognize God's voice when God calls us so that we can answer and having the courage to say yes. Sometimes when I teach children about baptism, uh, especially smaller children, I'll say to them, uh, you know, God has said, I love you. And baptism is a way to say, I love you back. It's a way that we, it's what we do. Not for our salvation, it's, Jesus already did that. But it's what we do to respond. And so do we have the courage to respond when Jesus calls us? You know, Jesus calls you and you have a hunch that that's Jesus. But quite often, we'll let that pass, kind of like Mary and Joseph did, and say they didn't know what was going on. Come on. You don't have a night like they had and not know a little bit about what's going on. 
So don't you know a little bit about what Jesus is calling you for and maybe you're just putting it on hold? I tell you, what concerns me and what lies in my heart is this. Is that sometimes in the church we get papered and programmed. We get articulate and we get agendaed. But we're also sometimes telling the faith story all wrong. Because we tell it as though it happened 2,000 years ago and we live our lives in such a way as though it has no relevance for us in this very moment, in this very day. And it does. It's real and it's alive. Or it's going to happen. We, it, it can't happen until the church budget is raised. Now, that's nothing against the church budget, by the way. And we do need to raise it. But God is going to have God's way. With or without us with whoever will listen. Do you remember the parable of the marriage feast? And all the friends didn't want to come to the feast, and so the king just sent out and said, well, get anybody off the street who wants to come to the feast. Bring them in. But God will have God's way with this world, and what God wants is God's way with you. We seem to forget sometimes, even though it's only the Sunday after Christmas, and Christmas was what? Can it be only two days ago? We seem to forget that Christ's name is Emmanuel, God with us. And it's not just when he sat among us 2,000 years ago, but God is with us today, this minute, right now. How will you live the next 24 hours of your life? That's such a, an interesting question. What will, you, what will you write on that blank sheet of paper? What will be your story today? It's not just about when Christ sat among us, but it's about now, and it's about when we cannot even feel the nail prints in his hand. We'll, we'll see this transition happen within our own lives. We have Lent, and we have this beautiful rhythm where we walk from birth to death to resurrection to birth of the church to and then it goes on and on so that we will be reminded because as people we can have such fickle hearts and we can forget so quickly i'm really not a person who believes in resolutions and i'll tell you why because i never keep them for one thing i think i would rather concentrate on blessings I would rather concentrate on what God is doing in my life than what I'm going to do with my life I have a feeling that when we have our eyes set on Jesus on what Jesus is doing in our lives any everything that we hope to do with our lives has a better shot at happening don't you think we can do so little by ourselves virtually nothing but with God, with God, all things are possible. And it's just the beginning. Amen.